Good evening, everyone. <laughs> um, we're going to do things a little differently tonight because we have to cover two genres of Old Testament literature um, at once. And so what we're going to do is kind of jump right into the uh, guiding questions for Amos. But since Amos is such an easy book, I figure, you know, we're all good. We have nothing to worry about anyway, right? Um, so I was talking to, uh, you know, a few of you before and, and just kind of listening to what your, your take was on, on Amos. And um, in general, if we want to kind of boil everything down to a couple of different questions that, that I'll cover, um, basically the questions are, what did this mean to God's people back then? And what does it mean for us today? So you guys are asking the right questions, which is great. When you get to a book like Amos, sometimes it's a little bit difficult because what did this mean to God's people back then? And as I mentioned last week, Amos and most of the prophets are very historically driven. It, it helps to understand what's going on historically, which is why a book like uh, your CSB study Bible framing the, the background. So what I'm gonna do tonight is just kind of walk through the guiding questions a little bit and, and give you a little bit of the, the history and background so we can, you can check your answers, so to speak. So like pretend this is math class and you've got your paper out and you're like, did I, did I do this right? Did I not do it right? The, the difference is it's, you know, the nice thing about math is you're either right or wrong. Um, it's one of the things I love about math. When you come to uh, interpreting scripture, sometimes you're like, I don't know if I'm right or wrong. So we'll, we'll walk through this a little bit and see uh, if I can help clear things up a little bit. All right, the, the first thing to understand, and maybe give me a little feedback for those of you who are in, in the audience right now, because I don't like just talking, I like to hear, so I know you're still awake. Um, in a word or two, what was the uh, political or social situation in Israel, the Northern Kingdom, who was the recipient of uh, Amos prophecies? What, what was the situation like? Yeah, it was good. They were prosperous. They were uh, uh, economically, they were good. Militarily, they were in a good position. This was the reign of Jeroboam II. And Jeroboam II had made Israel great again. If we want to borrow some, some modern terminology, this is, this is what happened. Israel had a lot of bad things happen to them. They were a very politically unstable kingdom. So they had uh, some assassinations, some uh, all kinds of things. If you want to read just some interesting historical reading, uh, the book of First and Second Kings is just really, really interesting reading. Uh, it modern history and modern the modern culture doesn't have anything on scripture. When you read First uh, and Second Kings, which focuses mostly on Israel and just on a lot of the political corruption. Of, of the kings and what was going on. Well, Jeroboam II had come to power and he stabilized Israel, the Northern Kingdom. But in order for us to understand the, the, what was going on in, in Amos day, we also need to understand the religious situation. So politically, socially, economically, militarily, things were good in Israel. Spiritually, it looked good. People were religious, but all was not as it seemed. Now, does this sound familiar to anyone, right? Yeah. In the days of Jeroboam I, not to be confused with Jeroboam II, so about um, two or three, two, 250 or so years earlier than this, 
when Solomon died, because of Solomon's sin late in his reign, God said that, I, that he is going to divide the kingdom into a northern and southern kingdom. Ten of the tribes would be in the north and would be the tribe, that would be Israel, ten tribes. And Jeroboam, son of Nebat, was the guy's name who was an official of Solomon. He was the one who became king of the northern kingdom. Rehoboam, who was the son of Solomon, became king of the southern kingdom, which had two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. So when, when Jeroboam becomes king, he is given a, a promise from God. And God said, if you will obey me and you will lead my people, I will give you a lasting dynasty just like I promised to David. And that's great. So Jeroboam's like, okay, awesome. So he, he's the king. But then Jeroboam starts thinking and he thinks to himself, there are... 10 tribes here in the north with me. But our place of worship is in Jerusalem, which is in the southern kingdom. If my people go to Jerusalem and worship, they are going to maintain their strong ties with David and the house of David, and they're not going to care about my kingdom. So he, th he calls his advisors together and they decide what are they going to do. And Jeroboam says, let's offer them places of worship here in the north. So essentially, and this is, I'm trying to, you know, boil down history to just a couple of minutes. Jeroboam I gave his people a religion that was convenient. He set up one uh, shrine in the north in Dan and another shrine in the south in Bethel. And he said, don't bother yourself going to Jerusalem. You can worship here where it's easier. He also gave them uh, a religion that was nationalistic. And it was, whoa, now you can hear me. Do I have to start over? <laughs> All right. <laughs> Good evening. <laughs> so Jeroboam I set up an alternative religion for the Northern Kingdom. It was convenient. It was nationalistic. And it was based upon their, their own people. So they didn't have to go down to Jerusalem. This was called in Kings, this is called the sin of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. It was a sin that the northern kingdom never recovered from. So they were constantly worshiping two golden calves, which again is harking back to Israel's ancient history. And he said, here are your gods. So you worship these golden calves, one in the north of, of Israel, the northern kingdom, one in the southern part of the northern kingdom. So they were worshiping these golden calves. And as a result of that, they also, they had this horrible political instability until the days of Jeroboam II, who established a, a strong military, a strong political socioeconomic system, and they were in a good place. Even religiously, they had their, they had their own religion. Everything was good, except in the eyes of the Lord. And so God sends Amos, a farmer, rancher from the southern kingdom to the north to prophesy, and that is the book of Amos. So when we kind of go through the guiding questions and we look at the beginning of the book of Amos, it starts out a little bit strangely until you understand really what's going on. So we've talked about the historical setting a little bit. So it's in a time of uh, unprecedented prosperity for the northern kingdom, uh, the author is Amos. The audience is the northern tribe. Amos was not a professional prophet. 
He was a farmer. Okay, so to imagine what this would be like, I used to live in Western Montana. And, and so in Western Montana, I lived in a, in, in a city there, but we would also have, you know, you'd have ranchers and farmers and, and people come in. So imagine a, a rancher or a farmer coming to City Hall in Kansas City to begin speaking or going to New York City. This is kind of what, what's going on. God calls Amos. And Amos begins with these, this geographical circuit. And um, uh, Fee and Stewart describe this really well, but basically what he's doing is he starts out with Israel's enemies. Damascus with the Arameans, um, Gaza, the Philistines, Tyre and Sidon, the, and, and all of these enemies around who had been a thorn in Israel's side. And he says, God is going to judge you and God is going to judge you, and God is going to judge you. And if you're, think about this, if you're Israel, like Amos is actually speaking these oracles in Samaria. So like, it'd be like me getting up and talking in front of all of you and be like, God's gonna judge all your enemies. What would you be thinking? Yeah, 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 yeah. amen, bring it on. And then he gets a little closer and he talks about the Moabites. Remember from our lesson in Ruth, the Moabites were like distant cousins to the Israelites. And then the Ammonites who were also distant cousins. And again, but they were also a thorn in Israel's side. And so he says, God's going to judge you. Amen, bring it on. Then he gets to the Edomites who were the descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother. So a little closer relation. But again, they were instigators and constant problems to Israel and Judah. Then he gets to Judah, the southern kingdom, and he talks about Judah's hypocrisy and Judah's sin. And the people are all saying, that's right, those, those southerners, I knew they weren't all, they act so holy and righteous, but really they're not. I mean, you can imagine what's going on here in, in Amos, in the audience. And then Amos says, and now Israel will talk about your sin. So you think going from, yes, Lord, bring on this judgment to now he's talking about us. And he keeps talking and keeps talking and keeps talking and keeps talking for chapter after chapter after chapter in hideous detail describing the sin of the northern kingdom. And it was probably went from being a loud, boisterous celebration to as quiet as it is in here. Because all of a sudden, Amos went from talking about them to talking about us. And at that point, the people didn't like it very much. And so if you, if you go a little further ahead, the, the, in fact, the, the high priest, who's one of the, the priests running one of these, these, these worship centers, says, goes and tells the king, make this guy shut up. And then there are these series of visions that Amos has that shows really just how bad Israel's sin was. And so then they have this, the pattern we talked about, remember there's sin, promise of judgment, and then hope of restoration. So that's kind of what's going on in the background in the book of Amos. So the geographical oracles are almost like painting a target. So you, and you go around and he's here, 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 and then hits the bullseye, which is 
the northern kingdom, Israel, really this is not about the sin of Damascus. This is not about the sin of Gaza. This is not about the sin of Tyre and Sidon. This is not about the sin of Judah. This is about your sin. And we're going to talk about your sin. And even though he, he goes into great detail talking about the sin, there's really two things that happen. He's really talking about two sins. The first sin is that they violated the covenant, what we would call spiritual adultery. So it is oftentimes it did actually take the form of sexual immorality and pagan worship. Remember, we talked about that a few weeks ago. But essentially, it was you have forsaken your covenant relationship with your God, and you are worshiping idols. And the idols that they were worshiping were these two golden calves. But lest we think, oh, you know, we are, you know, we don't worship idols. They were, they had developed a religion that was convenient and easy and fit within their political structure and their nationalistic zeal. I don't think I need to say much beyond that. How often do we create religions of ease and convenience that advance our nationalistic zeal and our political desires? The other sin that Amos rails on is social injustice, which as evangelical Americans in the 21st century, we don't tend to be comfortable talking about the social injustice. Amos pulls no punches in talking about the, the rich oppressing the poor, taking advantage of the less fortunate, the needy. And again, if we go back to Exodus, remember in our Exodus reading, how important was the plight of the poor and the oppressed to God in Exodus 19 through 24? Very important to God. How important did God expect it to be to his people? Very important. Fast forward to the days of Amos, how important was it to Israel, the northern kingdom? The rich took advantage of the poor to line their own pockets. The religious leaders and the political leaders were all in league with one another. The widows and the orphans were overlooked. It was just all around a bad situation. And God says, I see you. I know what you're doing. You can't get away from it. Oh, Israel, prepare to meet your God in judgment. So then what we would say is the, the author's original intent or the main idea is that it doesn't matter how rich you are, it doesn't matter how well your social system is, it doesn't matter how well you're doing militarily, if you, people of God, refuse to maintain your covenant relationship with me, so the vertical relationship, and take care of the needy among you, the horizontal relationship, then you will be destroyed. However, there will be hope and restoration beyond the judgment. But I was talking to my wife about this, and she said, well, well there's going to be restoration, so that's good. And I said, yes, but at a at a corporate level, there will be restoration. For individuals, there will still be, people will die. In Amos, do you remember the part where you read about Amos, there are the bodies piled in the streets? Their judgment's real. It's not just like God slaps your hand a little bit and then everything just, just goes on. This is real, horrific judgment 
brought about not because of a capricious God who delights in torturing people, but because of recalcitrant, hard-hearted people who refuse to hear the constant pleading of their God. So in Amos, I mean, did you read it? When you read it, these verses, seek me and live, seek the Lord and live. God is begging his people, repent. I don't want to destroy you. I don't want to hurt you. I do not want you to have this judgment. I would rather you repent and be restored than to be judged and be restored. But Israel would not repent. So that's kind of the, the framework of, of the, the book of Amos. And, and to some degree, most all of the prophets kind of fall within this same category. Amos is much more specific on the, the social justice issues, which is one of the reasons why I thought it would be good for us to read it, because it's something that we get a little bit uncomfortable talking about. And if you're uncomfortable hearing the words of Amos, then you understand what Amos's readers or the original audience would have felt also. They've been very uncomfortable. Now I'm going to make you super uncomfortable because the second question that, that some of you uh, had as I was talking and in, in, in your, your responses is, how on earth does this apply to my life? You're really going to wish you hadn't asked that question by the time we're done. How does this apply to my life? Okay, well, first of all, we say, is this primarily a knowing text or a doing text? The truth is it's both because Israel's problem wasn't that they didn't know stuff. Israel's problem was that they didn't do anything. God sent Amos to his people so that they would know and then so that they would do as a result of it. Similarities and differences between the original audience and God's people today, we might live under different covenants. You know, we're like, well, this is the Old Testament. We're in the New Testament. We're, we're, we're in the, 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 the New Covenant era because of Jesus and what he did. Yes, that's absolutely right. But it's the same God who still demands two things from his people. What, what are the two greatest commands? What did Jesus say? The two greatest commands are what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Does that summarize the book of Amos? Covenant with God, taking care of the needy. Love God, love of others. It summarizes the Ten Commandments, summarizes Amos, it summarizes the Old Testament, it summarizes the New Testament, it summarizes Jesus' teaching. It's all the same. If anything, we really are even more duty-bound to do it as God's people. Because we don't live in a nation that is under God's covenant like Israel was. So that's a difference. So our nation is not a, a, uh, a theocracy where ultimately God is the king of our country. That, that is not, America is not set up that way. Um, America is, is not that way. And really, you know, for, for better or for worse, you know, we, we just kind of need to put that idea out of our head because sometimes we get all caught up in this. Well, we need to, America needs to be a Christian nation. I think it's better to say that we as God's people need to act like God's people. Because I wonder sometimes if the church were the church, if maybe that would fix a lot of the problems in our country. And so often we, we think the problem is that our country needs to get back on track. I think the problem is the church needs to get back on track 
And it's easy for us to say those churches out there, but what does the book of Amos do? It circles around and hits me. What do I need to do? What, what is my problem? What sins do I have? How have I violated the covenant? So if Amos were speaking to us today, what groups might he use for his oracles? You know, like if you think about these people who are far away, the people who we typically think of as our quote unquote enemies. So this would be like, you could think of, this would be maybe the, the LGBTQ community or Hollywood or the Democrats or the Republicans or China or Iran, or I mean, just fill in the blank, right? Watch the news, fill in the blank. These are the, the enemies. Then we zoom in a little closer. Well, who are the groups who are closer to us, maybe related to us, who we still consider our enemies? Then we start saying things like, oh, well, it's the, the Catholics, it's the Methodists and the Presbyterians. And, you know, if you've been in church long enough, you know the, those other groups. Okay, let's zoom in a little bit more. Who's Judah? So I asked this question to someone and they said, that, that'd be the Southern Baptist Convention. So, you know, the, 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 the Baptists are the group that we're, we're a part of. And I said, yeah, you're getting closer. So we can always say, oh, well, you know, the convention does this or that, or this group or this other Southern Baptist church over here is doing this or that. And, and you know, we, we love to talk about that. But if that's the case, who's Israel? Pleasant Valley Baptist Church or your church whatever church you're a member of. Or if we talk about it as, as people, it's me and my family. I can talk about what these people are doing over here and what problems they have and what problems they have. But then when it comes down to my sin, what am I doing? Am I taking care of the needy? Am I honoring the covenant? You see how uncomfortable we get? This is why we, we don't like reading books like Amos because it hurts because it, it, it uncovers all our religiosity. Remember, Israel had their religiosity. They had their northern worship center and their southern worship center, and they said, we worship God. They worship God, and then they go and oppress their workers. They worship God, and then they go and commit adultery. They worship God, and then they go and worship idols. And we do the same thing. I'm not even going to say anything about coming to church and worshiping God and then going and worshiping at Arrowhead Stadium afterwards and the amount of money that we're willing to pay for one and not the other. I'm not even gonna talk about that because I think if I did, you'd probably treat me like Amy. What are you, you're an outsider, you're not from here, you don't know anything about us or, you're right. That's exactly who Amos was. The difference is I'm not a prophet of the Lord. I'm not up here saying it's a sin to do those things. But Amos was and that's what he was saying. But I think sometimes we need to check our hearts because we fall into the same sins. We fall into the same worldliness without even realizing it. And we assume if I go to church or I tithe or I teach a Sunday school class or whatever I do, I'm good, I'm covered. Amos says that is not enough. God says that is not enough. It's not about what you do. It's about ultimately what is in your heart. And if your heart is not right, then ultimately judgment will fall. And so really, when we look at this, we think about the, the book of Amos. Do we struggle with the same sins today? Oh, yes. Yes, we do. We just call them different things, but they're the same sins. 
We worship our 401k. I'm not gonna, I can't give to the church because it means I can't retire as quickly. They don't need my money. I need my money. It's not about, God doesn't need your money. But if you need your money more than you need God, you have a problem. Now I'm really stepping on toes. But I'm that way too. I mean, it's hard. It's hard. It's so easy to get wrapped up in this, in this thinking. And a book like Amos, which we think, oh, it's an Old Testament book. Oh, what is it? it? It smacks us upside the head with the same message that Amos gave long ago. Are you loving God and are you loving others? And if you're doing that, then even when crisis and disaster comes, God is with you. Um, in, in the book of Jeremiah, for example, there are these portraits of individual faithfulness. In the midst of, a, of another country, several hundred years later, another country gone horribly wrong, Judah, the southern kingdom. And God says, for these people who were faithful, I'm with you. We can't control, the, one of the other differences, I think, between us and, and Amos is Amos was talking about a country, a group, corporate, national sin. God judges nations differently than he judges individuals. God lets nations sometimes go for hundreds of years in sin, a lot longer than, than we would. We think God's vengeful and wrathful in the Old Testament. He's actually a lot more patient than, than I think any of us would be. But God judges nations and he judges individuals as well. Individual faithfulness can preserve us during national crisis and chaos. We, we may or may not be able to control what happens in our country over the next one month, three months, five years, 10 years, 20 years. But I can control what happens in my heart. And I can control what happens in my family. And we can maybe control what happens a little bit more in our church and in our community. If we focus on those things, then I think we're being faithful to the message of Amos, which is I can't control what my nation does with my tax dollars, but I can control what I do. Am I loving God? Am I loving others? This is the message of the book of Amos. So that being said, <laughs> now we'll uh, jump into the Psalms and wisdom literature. So again, hopefully what, what you've seen as we've gone through this, these general tips for reading scripture, again, what did this mean to God's people back then? So with Amos, we've just covered this. What does this mean for us today? If we understand what it meant to them, then the applications for today open up. When they open up in a book like Amos, it hurts. I, I remember reading Amos uh, earlier this week, and I was just in like a bad mood, just really depressed because I see myself, I like to see myself as the hero of the story, but when I see myself as I'm Israel, this is what it means. What does it mean for me? What do I need to do about this? So the two basic questions, the goal again of the two, what does this mean to God's people back then is to understand the, uh, the uh, author's main idea to his original audience, which we kind of covered with Amos. And then what does this mean um, for us today is really to cover how do we appropriate that message today? And it might be different for each one of us. Because what my loving God and loving my neighbor looks like might be different for yours, for you and, for, and, and, and yours. But 
it will still happen in the same basic way. Okay, we still will love God and we love others. So if we skip ahead then to the next couple, let's see. So original audience to the, I'm getting tongue-tied. Author's original intent to his original audience. The next slide we understand, live out the meaning of the text in line with what it meant for God to God's people back then. One last thing on Amos. I talk about Amos forever. I think it's an incredible book. And maybe I'm just a glutton for punishment. Just think to yourself. This is the last thing I'll, I'll leave you with on, on Amos. How different would your family, your community group, your church, your community look if you embraced and lived out the teaching of Amos? Just think about that. Because that is live out the meaning of the text today in line with what it meant to God's people back then. So go ahead and go to the next slide. We're going to talk about Psalms. This is like, you're going to get whiplash after dealing with Amos and then coming into Psalms. I think when I sent out the email, I said, you know, one of the things I love about scripture is its ability to convict us so deeply and then also simultaneously encourage us. Psalms is such a, a, a commonly read book that really the truth is it's almost, it should be in the New Testament almost. In fact, it kind of is. If you have a Gideon Bible, you have New Testament, Psalms and Proverbs. So we're, we're moving from a couple of, of weeks of very difficult reading into something that is much more familiar with, with us in the Psalms. And in some ways, the Psalms are really easy to read, interpret, and apply. But that also makes it a little bit deceptive sometimes because the Psalms are unique in scripture because when we read Exodus or we read Amos or um, most all of our reading so far, it is God's word to God's people. When we read the Psalms, they're God-inspired human responses. So there are people saying things to God, but God inspired them to be said. Because they are people saying things to God, it's easy for us to say the same things. How many of you have ever lamented? I mean, lamenting is to be sad. Okay, there, thank you. <laughs> How many of you have ever been happy? How many of you have ever been angry? <laughs> How many of you have ever been thankful? See, the substance of the Psalms. Anger, lament, praise, thanksgiving. The, these, so, so it's easy for us when we read them, we're like, this is me. I could say these things, not as beautifully, but I could say them. And so when we take these words upon in our lips, when we say, the Lord is my shepherd, that's just as true for me as it was for David. And so we can take these words and say them to the Lord in the same way as they were said before. And so that makes them very easy to adopt into our current worship. And really, the Psalms are essentially a hymnal. For, for those of you who don't know what a hymnal is, 20-somethings, no, just kidding, um, it's that book with, sorry, I, that was mean. Anyway, um, 
It's the book with the squiggly lines that I don't know what they mean. Um, and then there are the words that I can read to a tune. I was so bad at, uh, I, I never knew. Someone once said that we were talking about in church one time and someone's like, I don't like it that they took the hymnal out because I don't, I, I read the notes. And I said, you could read those things? I was like, wow. But the Psalms are essentially a hymnal where I did not write a mighty, a mighty fortress is our God but I've experienced God being a mighty fortress. So when I sing a mighty fortress is our God, I am praising God for how he was a mighty fortress in my life. Now he wasn't a mighty fortress in my life the same way he was a mighty fortress in Martin Luther's life. But still, I, when I am worshiping, I am joining with Martin Luther in praising the same God who is still a mighty fortress today. And the Psalms work essentially that way. So while that makes them very easy to, uh, to utilize and to adopt and to apply, sometimes we make mistakes in interpreting them because it's so easy, it becomes deceptive. So for example, Psalms are poetry and not intended to teach doctrinal minutiae. You're like, well, what on earth does he mean by that? This is what I mean. There is a verse in Psalms that says, the earth, he is, the, the earth is established in the heavens and cannot be moved. And so the Catholic Church in the middle, late, late Middle Ages, early days of the, the Renaissance said that people like Galileo and Copernicus were heretics. What did Galileo and Copernicus say that was so heretical? that the earth moves around the sun. The earth cannot move around the sun. It's established in the heavens. It's fixed. It cannot be moved. Now, now today we kind of laugh about that, right? Because, well, that's not what that meant. But if you take that verse literally, you have to redefine astrophysics completely. The author of that psalm was not making a statement regarding the relationship between the earth and the sun and the universe. The psalmist was saying that God holds the earth and preserves it, and that it is God who is the reason why the earth is fixed in the heavens and cannot be moved. It's metaphorical language, it's poetry. And we have to understand that because there are times where we might assume that the most literal way to understand this is the best way when it's not always. Remember poetry in school, all those horrible poems you had to read and those horrible, the teacher who made you find all of the little nuances and the double meaning and all of this. And some of you just loved it. And others of you are like, please just kill me now. This is horrible. <laughs> but it's important to understand you don't read poetry the same way that you read the newspaper or a history book. And it's important when reading the Psalms that the Psalms are not intended to teach doctrinal minutia. We have to be careful with this because there are times where the, the psalmist will talk about things like, you know, you, I say you are gods and, and these other things. We're like, well, what does that say about the, the spiritual realm and the angels and the relationship between angels and, and this and that? And we'll read the psalm sometime trying to understand. I don't think that was the intent of the psalmist 
to describe in detail the inner workings of the spiritual realm. We need to be careful how we interpret the Psalms because we're not reading doctrinal minutia. Does that make sense to everyone? Okay, next slide. Psalms can be classified, and here, here you go, you people who have issues with poetry, you have to bear with me a little bit. Psalms can be classified and they follow similar patterns, right? So the Psalms, unlike English, which, which usually poetry in English is classified according to rhythm and rhyme and, and meter and, and such. Hebrew poetry and in the Psalms is usually classified more according to content, what it is actually saying. And so, for example, we have Psalms like lament. And I'm sorry, this is my bad. These are arrows. Just pretend like these are arrows here. Um, yeah, they're squares, but they're, they're supposed to be arrows. And I think in the, in the text, okay. <laughs> they are also not greater than signs. Because if you read this in, in, your, in your manual, I am not saying that despair is greater than remembrance, which is greater than confidence. So, okay. This is, this is for Mr. Mifflin, my son's math teacher, and for my son. Those are arrows. <laughs> but in Psalms, there's a, there's a lament follows a pattern where you start with despair. Then you move to remembering what God has done, who God is, and then you move to confidence. So I am in a bad place. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is despair. Then later on in the Psalm, he remembers who God is. God is with me as a mighty warrior. Another Psalm says, I can move from despair. I remember who God is, and then I have confidence. So most laments end in confidence. Incidentally, most Psalms are laments. There are more lament Psalms than any other type which tells you something about the human condition, doesn't it? See, when we think of Psalms, we usually think of praise. There are more lament Psalms than praise Psalms. But think about it in your own life. Do you praise more or lament more? Probably lament more. Like the Psalms are kind of the same. It's okay to have a bad day. What do you do when you have a bad day? Despair, remember, confidence. We see this pattern. Sometimes the pattern gets moved around a little bit. So in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah lays out a lament where he despairs, he remembers, he has confidence, and then he despairs again. Which tells you something about what was going on in Jeremiah's heart at the time. So when the, when the order is switched around, that becomes important. Like when, it, when a poet takes the, the, the normal pattern and switches it around, that becomes very important. So despair, remembrance, confidence. Thanksgiving psalms begin with deliverance. So this is like, I was stuck in the miry clay, but the Lord set my feet upon a rock. I acknowledge what he did, and then I will make a vow on the basis of what God has done. This is what I am going to do. I will sacrifice and call upon the name of the Lord. I will declare among the nations what God has done. These are Thanksgiving Psalms. They start 
with the deliverance, in many ways, it's like the second half, the, 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 the sequel to the lament. When God fixes the problem, because God doesn't fix it in the lament. Confidence, incidentally, comes before deliverance. You can be confident in the Lord even when he hasn't yet delivered you. On the basis of how he has been in the past, he was faithful before, he'll be faithful again. He's always faithful to his people. And then the acknowledge, so once he delivers you, what do you do? I just tell him what my next problem is. No, we rejoice, we give thanks. And remember I said, I think a couple weeks ago, I said, I don't like talking about the things that I've got, the messes I've gotten myself into. But if I'm not willing to talk about the messes in my life, then I can't talk about God's deliverance. And maybe the reason why you don't have faith in God is because I'm not willing to share how stupid I am and what God did to get me through the stupidity in my own life. And then when I make my vow and I publicly declare God's goodness, then the assembly, all of you hear and rejoice, and then you put your hope in God. That's the purpose of the, praise, of the, the Thanksgiving Psalms. So you have lament, you have thanksgiving. You also have praise psalms. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. They're a declaration of God's character and glory in creation, what he's done in, in Israel's history. All of these are praise psalms where you just revel in the greatness of God. If we cannot revel in God's greatness as his own people, how can we expect the world to be attracted to him? Praise psalms revel in God's greatness. Wisdom psalms are admonitions based on that greatness. So Psalm 1, Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Another horribly misused verse. It's actually really straightforward. Delight yourself in the Lord. Most of us run right past that little bit because what do we want? We want the desires of our heart. Do you know when you delight yourself in the Lord, he changes the desires of your heart? Sometimes I think that the, the goal of prayer is not that we tell God what we want so he gives it to us. Prayer changes our hearts. It lines our hearts up with what, with what God wants us to have. Maybe the reason why God isn't giving us the desires of our heart is he's waiting for our hearts to be in line with his desires. He wants us to dream the dreams he has for us. We're so focused on our dreams and what we want. And we're saying, God, give me what I want. God is not a genie who just is there to obey our wishes. Wisdom Psalms admonish us based on who God is. He's faithful. You can trust him. I have been young and now I am old and I have never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread. It's a wisdom admonition. God is faithful to his people. We also have another type of psalm. They're far less common, but more difficult to deal with. Imprecatory psalms, which call for justice and victory against God's enemies. Psalm 137 is one of the most difficult of these. There's the, it ends at the line, happy is he who dashes your infants against the rocks. In fact, if you, if you go on, if you Google that verse, you'll find a lot of like atheist cartoons that pop up and, you know, 
make fun of Scripture because of, of this uh, passage of Scripture, Psalm 137. What is not understood is that this is what was actually happening to Israel. This is what was happening to, to Judah when they were taken into captivity. The psalmist is not saying, I wish this would happen. The psalmist is really essentially saying that God does not forget. God, I'm calling for justice and victory against whose enemies? God's enemies. Who do we call for justice against? Our enemies. See, there's a difference there. When you read the Psalms, um, David is very consumed with God's glory. Most of the time, we're consumed with our own glory. I don't, this guy offended me at work, or he, you know, someone stole the promotion I should have had, and I'm going to call for justice. It doesn't make it, just because someone else got your promotion doesn't make that person God's enemy. See how quick, we very, we're very quickly to, you know, assume that God's enemies are our enemies. We need to make sure that our enemies are God's enemies. And from a New Testament perspective, as, as Gary Thomas reminded us last week, the enemies are not people. The enemies are spiritual enemies. The enemy is sin. How serious are we going back to Amos? I'm sorry, I said I wouldn't, but I'm going to. Going back to Amos, how serious are we about dealing with the sin in our lives? Maybe we need to call for justice and victory against God's enemies that rest in our own human heart. The sin that's in my heart Maybe that's what God's serious about. I'm more serious about whether my life can be comfortable and everything can be great. And God says, no, I want to deal with the sin in your heart. Imprecatory Psalms, difficult to read, but they call for justice and victory against God's enemies. One other interesting feature about the book of Psalms is that there may be a, a hint of some of the meaning to the structure. Everything that is put together is put together for a certain reason. There's a reason to the order. So like in, in hymnals, a lot of hymnals are arranged um, according to theme, which is why all the Christmas songs are together, which makes it nice at Christmas time, you know, when you can find all of the, the Christmas carols together. But oftentimes the, praise, the, the songs of praise are together or songs about Jesus' birth, songs about the resurrection are all together. The Psalms may actually have a structure to them that as, you're, as you read them, you might come across a heading. If you go to the next slide, that says something like book one, book two. There are actually five books in Psalms, five collections. Books one and two are Psalm 1 through 41 and 42 through 72. They're actually mostly Psalms written by David. And they seem to reflect a time mostly in the early monarchy. There are a lot of laments, but things usually end up working out well in the end. There, there's nothing overly dark. There are the, the common plights of man. Bad things happen. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And it's like, so even when things are bad, they get good again. However, as you move further into the Psalms, Psalm 73 is a well-known Psalm because it's the one that asks the question, why do the wicked prosper? Psalm 73 kind of parallels the, the book of Job a little bit in, in its asking of the question. But Psalm 73 through 89 
almost are, are written in such a way that they, they hint at the fall of Jerusalem and the exile, such that Psalm 89, some people call it the black psalm because it doesn't end in any praise. Now, when you read it in, in the English Bible, there's actually a little praise stanza at the end, but those praise stanzas are actually at the end of each of the books, and they weren't attached to the original psalm itself. So you have Psalm 89, which ends in the literal word darkness, where someone says, darkness is my only friend. And then there's a line of praise afterwards. The praise line is almost like a, a summation that, to that entire book. But Psalm 89 has nothing in it but blackness, which you imagine the fall of Jerusalem and exile from the book of Amos, the judgment that falls, there's darkness. Then book three, or sorry, book four, Psalm 90 through 106. These are the Psalms that talk about things like Yahweh is king, let the earth rejoice. Yahweh is king, let the nations tremble. Psalm 90 actually is a Psalm of Moses. And it goes back all the way to the beginning. And it says, the Lord has been our shelter. It's the Lord who is the king. Because the, the, the fall and the exile pointed out that even the Davidic kingship was deeply flawed. Salvation was not to be found in a human Davidic king. Now, ultimately, we know moving forward that, that Jesus fulfilled that, but none of Judah's kings really fit the bill. There were good ones. There were really bad ones, but God was the king of his people. And these Psalms kind of focus on that, that period of we don't need an earthly ruler to, to fix our problems. We need God to be our king. And then book three, Psalm 107 to 150, are full of hope and praise. Whereas, you know, Psalm 144, 145 to 150, in this huge crescendo of praise, you know, praise the Lord, all the earth, the heavens, the, 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 the seas, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. So the Psalms are almost, the, the way that the book of Psalms is structured is to almost reteach in poetic form and in praise Israel's history from earliest day, from the early monarchy, all the way to the return from exile and ultimate culmination in praise. So when you are reading the Psalms, then what you can do is, where is this psalm? The placement of it might give you a hint as to how the original compilers of that, that psalm intended for it to be understood. Now, you have to be careful with this because each psalm is also a discrete unit. So you want to read the psalm in and of itself. It's like, I'm not going to sing this song based upon what this song and this song mean. I'm not going to sing this song to this tune. But what you can realize sometimes is that where the psalm is placed might give you a little bit of an additional insight into how the singers in the early day, how the readers understood that psalm. In your How to Read the Bible book by book, they focus on this a lot. So in your reading, that it'll help you to understand this a little more. It's just an added layer when you read the Psalms of something else to notice, of how, how were the Psalms put together. So 
That's the book of Psalms. Go ahead and go to the next slide. I'm going to take a drink really quick because I've been talking a lot. On to wisdom. When we speak of Old Testament wisdom, we're talking about books like Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, um, Song of Songs, although there's kind of some debate on, on that. And then there are certain portions of other scripture. Wisdom was a common ancient literary form. It's not something that we typically read uh, today. Now, we, the closest thing we have today would be like um, uh, Benjamin Franklin's saying, you know, stitch in time saves nine, um, early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. So we have some of these wisdom sayings. Um, unfortunately, we might also say that tweets and uh, bumper stickers have become the wisdom of the modern age. I really hope that's not true, but, you know, that's where we are. But anyway, um, wisdom was a common ancient literary form. The Egyptians wrote wisdom literature. The Edomites had wisdom literature. The Babylonians had wisdom literature. So the Old Testament wisdom literature is not unique in its form. And sometimes you might read, if you, if you read much into, into arguments about scripture, some people will say things like, well, the Proverbs were just copied from the wisdom of uh, Amenemope, who was a, a, a writer in Egypt, and they were copied from this other nation and this other nation. And some of that is true. There are parallels between biblical wisdom and the Egyptian wisdom collections. But the Bible doesn't claim to be unique in the form or even its function, which is to make someone wise, but in its foundation. The biblical foundation for wisdom is in the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And if you kind of think back to, remember the two circles we talked about where there's the, the everything interconnected? This group who saw man, deity, and nature all together, their gods could not provide wisdom. That could not be a foundation of wisdom because their gods were just superpowered, capricious people. There was no, the gods could not provide wisdom. And in fact, if you read, you know much about Greek mythology, the, the Greek gods are not wise. They're just really badly behaved people who are really powerful. It's kind of like Marvel superheroes now. Um, but in, in the biblical worldview, where God is transcendent above all, God is the natural source for wisdom. And so the Old Testament wisdom is unique in its foundation that wisdom does not come from man figuring things out. Wisdom comes from God. Now, the unique nature of wisdom, because it, it isn't unique in its form or function, means that we can have discussions with people of other faiths or people of no faith at all or people of other cultures about wise things. It shouldn't intimidate us or offend us or bother us when you hear people say, oh, you know, there's a lot of wisdom in Confucianism or there is, there are, uh, Buddha had wise things to say about this. Well, of course they did because wisdom is bound up in the, in the very fabric of the universe and God intended people to understand the way the world works. It is a wonderful entry point into moving people past wisdom to its foundation. 
I find this a lot of times with, when, I'm, when I'm at work because I'll, uh, I'll talk about something and I'll say, oh, you know, there's a, the, the Bible says this in Proverbs, you know, about we're dealing with, you know, there's a, 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 a client or someone who's just being particularly obnoxious or being dishonest or something. And I say something about, oh, you know, there's a proverb that talks about this. And I quote these things. And no one at my job is offended that I quote the Proverbs. But it also kind of softens people's hearts to hearing scripture. Because then later on, I'm able to say things like, well, you know, Jesus once said and say something. And all of a sudden they're like, oh yeah, that, that makes sense. Old Testament wisdom literature provides a great entry point into softening people's attitudes towards scripture. And the ultimate goal, of course, is to lead them to the foundation of wisdom, which is God. Go ahead and go to the next slide. A couple of comments about wisdom literature. Wisdom literature focuses on everyday life as a series of choices between two ways. Proverbs chapter one through nine deals with these two ways. There's the way of wisdom and the way of folly. And and as as it unfolds these things, the voice of the parents, listen to this, my kids online, listen to this. The voice of the parent is the voice of wisdom. The voice of the friends is the voice of folly. The voice of the, the mocker, the, the, the murderer, the one who intends, let's waylay some innocent soul, the get rich quick schemes, those are folly. The, the voice of the parent, the godly parent saying, this is God's wisdom is ultimately the voice of wisdom, which is ultimately the voice of God. And so you see this in Proverbs 1 through 9, but it focuses on everyday life and conduct. So it's not always about this religious, you know, the the, the religiosity in in Amos or the false worship or even this relationship between God and, and others, even though that's there, it's kind of more in the background. It's just about make wise decisions. Don't be a fool. A get-rich-quick scheme is going to hurt you in the end. All of these things that those of us who have lived life long enough, we learn these things. Some of us have learned it the hard way. Some of us have learned it, hopefully, by listening to others. Wisdom is, I'm going to learn it from you so I don't have to experience it myself. With wisdom literature, there's an important caveat that we have to understand. If we go to the next slide... Wisdom literature is probably one of the most abused types of literature. And we have this happen in the church all the time. We're really well-intended, but we don't understand the way wisdom literature works. And we interpret wisdom literature either exclusive of the rest of Scripture or we apply it more exactly than it is intended to be applied. So I'm going to give a couple of examples of this. A couple, you know, one or two are are a little more humorous and then one is is a lot more serious. Um, So we'll start with the funny one first before we get to the the serious one. There's a place in Proverbs where it talks about a bribe and it says like a a bribe is, is like a gift in the hand of the giver and he succeeds wherever he goes. Proverbs actually says that. And so you're like, does Proverbs advocate the giving of bribes? No, because we don't interpret wisdom literature exclusive of the rest of scripture. Proverbs is not saying, hey, use bribes. They work. Proverbs is simply saying, by the way, bribes work. 
Do we believe that bribes actually work? Have we seen it? Yeah. It also says that a bribe thwarts justice. Have we seen that happen? Yes, absolutely. Proverbs is just saying, this is the way the world actually is. It's not always saying whether it's supposed to be that way or not. But it's not intended to be interpreted exclusive of the rest of scripture. And even within itself, Proverbs 1 through 9 provides a framework. Choose the way of wisdom. Is the way of wisdom giving bribes? No. Will that work? Yeah, it does sometimes. But you're going to get caught in the end. That's the nature of wisdom. And if we don't understand it, if we just grab one verse by itself, then, and I've actually read, I mean, you read, you know, if you go online and you read like, you know, the the naysayers about scripture, they're like, scripture advocates taking bribes. See this verse in Proverbs. And they just put the verse there. Have no clue how wisdom literature actually works. Now the verse is actually there and it actually does say that. There's another one that a lot of uh, people like to use um, to say that scripture is not inerrant because there's a verse, there's one verse in Proverbs that says, answer a fool according to his folly or he will be wise in his own eyes. The very next verse says, don't answer a fool according to his folly or you will be like him yourself. So people are like, hey, look, these two verses are saying the opposite thing. Yes, they are. And it's intentional. There are a couple of, of ways that we understand this. One is, We understand that there are some fools that need to be responded to. And then there are other times where it is not worth it. The wise person knows the difference. A wise person can tell this is a fool who might actually accept correction. Or this is a fool who is not worth responding to. The wise person, see, wisdom is an art. Living wisely, it's not just following a formula. It's an art. It's skillful living. The other way to look at these two verses together is there's no hope for a fool. Answer a fool, don't answer a fool. It doesn't matter because foolishness just destroys your life. But then later on, I think it's in that same chapter, actually another verse that says, do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. It's like, well, if there's no hope for a fool... Someone who's wise in their own eyes is even worse off. So sometimes when you read the the Proverbs in in groups, it kind of will start with like this, kind of like Amos, where it's like, boom, 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 the fool, the fool, the fool, the fool. Oh, by the way, if you think you're wise in your own eyes, you're actually worse off than all of this that it says about a fool. So those are two of the more uh, humorous ways that, that we understand that we can misinterpret wisdom literature. This one is one that has caused a lot more pain in, in many Christians' lives um, or helps it causes us to cling to false um, hope. There's a proverb that says, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. And I have some, some good friends who, when they were, they were, um, they would claim this. This is a promise from God. If we train our child in the way they should go, they will not depart from it. But then I also know some Christians who are older and their children in, 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 in adulthood walked away from the Lord and they beat themselves up like, oh, I just messed up. I didn't train them. I didn't train them in the way they should go because if I would have trained them in the way they should go, then when they're old, they wouldn't depart from it. And it didn't happen, so I must have messed up. And they beat themselves up over it. The problem is, 
wisdom literature is not intended as a 100% slam dunk guaranteed promise from God. They don't work that way. They are general statements about the way the world often works, but not always. There's another proverb that says, do you see a man skilled in his work? He will serve before kings. He will not serve before mere men. Well, do you know anyone, anyone who is a skilled worker who works in obscurity? Of course you do. Some of you might say, I'm a skilled worker and I work in obscurity. That proverb is not guaranteeing that if you're a good worker, you're going to serve before a king or a president or, or something. All it's saying is that skilled workers are much more likely to receive promotion and notability than those who aren't. So we go back to the the, uh, parenting proverb. Your children are more likely to serve the Lord and walk with him if you raise them in the way of the Lord. But that is not a guarantee. One of the ways when I talk to people like this, I ask this question, who were Adam and Eve's parents? Or who was Adam and Eve's parent? Hmm? God. How did Adam and Eve do? Is that God's fault? I mean, see, just the logic of it, then it's like, well, that makes sense. But if we applied that verse, then we would somehow say God messed up. I'm not willing to say that. I mean, we we need to think, and and wisdom literature, you see, wisdom literature is tricky to interpret because it's so simple and straightforward. You read that verse by itself and you're like, man, this is awesome. I'm going to train up my child in the way they should go. And we should. I'm not saying you don't have to worry, you know, don't, don't train up your child. That's not what it's saying. But we don't want to take these Proverbs to the bank as promises from God because the author of Proverbs proverbial writing is not intended to be thus saith the Lord. Do you all understand? This is, this is one of the, the most difficult things for people, I think, to, to wrap their heads around. Because then some people are like, he's saying that this is not true. I'm not saying it's not true. Because remember, we go back to our question. The, the first thing is, what did this mean to God's people back then? The type of literature impacts how we read it. Proverbs are not guaranteed promises from God. They are general statements about how the world works most of the time. Incidentally, what I have noticed in life is that the more godly and righteous your situation is, the more the Proverbs seem to apply. The more corrupt it becomes, the more Ecclesiastes seems to apply which is just life's terrible and then you die. That's a little bit of an oversimplification, but you read Ecclesiastes and you're like, yeah, it's, it's kind of saying that sometimes. Because when things get really bad, think about Amos's day. Amos was a very wise person bringing wise words that people needed to hear. And how was he treated? They, had not, they did not want anything to do with his wisdom. It seems one, one guy, Derek Kidner, who's a, who's a great British uh, scholar of uh, 
previous generation wrote a lot on on the Proverbs. Derek Kidner is one of those guys where if you can get any of his books or things he's written on Genesis, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, anything he's written is really, really good. Great, great man of God, great scholar. He made a statement one time to the effect of 90% of the time, Proverbs describes life. The other 10% of the time, see Job and Ecclesiastes. And, and I think that's really true, although sometimes I think the more crazy our world becomes, the percentages begin to change, where sometimes it seems like it's more 25, 75, sometimes even 50, 50. But that's the way wisdom literature works, because it's describing these two ways. The way of wisdom, the way of folly. Don't assume that these are promises that can be uh, interpreted exclusive of the rest of Scripture or to apply them more uh, exactly than it is intended. Go ahead, go to the next slide. So, for your homework this week, we're going to have a little bit more reading than, than normal, but it's also a little bit more free than normal. One of the goals that I have at, at this point, as you've kind of gone through things, we've all been doing the same reading up until now. This week, you're going to pick your reading. Because there are 150 psalms, I'm not going to ask you to read all of them. Unless you want to. I mean, no. What I want you to do is to read a different psalm each day, along with the book by books, uh, page uh, 130 to 143. Then uh, also, Psalm uh, 119 and 120 kind of describe the, the overall wisdom literature and, and uh, poetry as a whole. I think that'll be helpful for you. If you remember, too, uh, some of what we talked about last week about poetry, the parallelism, where it likes to say things twice. Did you catch that as you read through Amos, like this, this uh, re repetition of things? And the content, it's repetitive in content. It doesn't rhyme. It doesn't always, you know, meter. It's not snappy, except in its, in its parallelism. Psalms as poetry is full of parallelism. Proverbs also full of parallelism. So all we talked about with regard to Hebrew poetry last week applies the same, if not more, in, in this reading. But just read a different psalm each day. And in the guiding questions, we have questions like, where was, the, where, where was this on? Which book is it in? Does that affect how you read it or understand it? What's the main point that the psalmist is trying to make? What type of psalm is this? Can you pick up the, 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 um, the pattern? Is it a lament psalm? Is it a praise psalm? Is it an imprecatory psalm? What, what's going on here with, with the, the, the psalm? The pattern, where it is, and does that help enhance your reading of the psalm? Okay, so that's the Psalms reading. Again, I said uh, at the beginning, um, this, is, this class really should be two sessions, I think. Um, we put it as one just because of, of time constraints, but um, really, I think handling Psalms and wisdom separately would, would be good. So you're going to have a little extra reading uh, this week because the Proverbs reading, what I want you to do is read Proverbs chapters one through nine. It's, it's not significantly long, uh, nine chapters, it's smaller than Amos for sure. A lot easier to read than, than the book of Amos, definitely. Um, and then you'll read uh, How to Read the Bible book by book 144 to 153, which covers the Proverbs reading. And then pick a different chapter of Proverbs 10 through 31 each day. 
So the way that I would encourage you to do this is read Proverbs 1 through 9 as, as soon as you can, because that frames your entire reading of the book of Proverbs. And you might want to kind of go back to Proverbs 1 through 9 as you read Proverbs throughout the week. But I would suggest if you can read Proverbs 1 through 9 uh, tomorrow or uh, Wednesday, sometime as soon as you can. Then just read a different chapter of Proverbs each day. And, and some of the questions that, that we're asking you to think about in uh, your reading of uh, Proverbs are things like, um, how do these Proverbs promote right living in the fear of the Lord? Right living in the fear of the Lord is kind of just a, a little way of describing wisdom. Just living right before the Lord. How do these Proverbs promote that? Um, are there any common threads that you see? One of the questions I want to ask is, were, it, were there any Proverbs that seemed odd or unusual? Are there any Proverbs that made you uncomfortable? Sometimes the things that make us uncomfortable, the things that bother us, are things that are worth thinking about a little bit more. Why does this bother me? Hopefully, if you stumbled across the proverb about a bribe working, that should bother you, make you feel a little bit uncomfortable. Why, why is this here? Why is it saying it? Think about that, because it's intended to kind of jar you a little bit. A lot of the Proverbs jar us. Wisdom literature kind of makes us stop and think for a minute. So if you read Proverbs 1 through 9 as soon as you can, then read a psalm each day and a proverb each day. Any of them. And then go through the guiding questions. The goal of, of this exercise, in addition to, to doing the reading, is hopefully you'll begin to see, I can do this. I don't have to read exactly what the teacher's telling me to read. We don't all have to read the same things. I don't have to talk about this. I, I can actually read God's word on my own and understand what did it mean to them? What does it mean for me? Because just to kind of recap for our whole class, the ultimate goal of this class is that you can read God's word for yourself. It is not a church a pastor, a PhD's job to tell you what the Bible means. It is the Holy Spirit's job. And sometimes he uses teachers and pastors and scholars, but ultimately you also have the Holy Spirit within you. As a, as a believer in Jesus, a follower of Christ, you have the Holy Spirit within you who can help you to know what scripture means. So the ultimate goal, of course, being that you will live it out. The same question we asked about, you know, about the book of Amos, how different would it be? How different would our lives be if we lived lives of praise like the Psalms and lived wisely like the book of Proverbs? I think we'd see a big difference. And as you read this week, that's kind of what I want you to think about. So Psalms, Proverbs. Then we're going to actually start the New Testament next uh, week. We're going to do the Gospels, the New Testament Gospels. If you really have some extra time this week, read through the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, I find that sometimes, maybe it's just because I'm a weird person, I find Ecclesiastes very comforting. Not because it makes me feel good, but it makes me feel okay that I feel bad. Sometimes the Ecclesiastes outlook on life when I think things are horrible, things are bad. Like Solomon said, yeah, yeah, been there, done that. Wealth doesn't make me happy. Nope. Prosperity, nope. Food, nope. Okay. 
Sometimes we, we get this. I remember teaching this one time and I had someone come up to me after class and they said, I loved Ecclesiastes. Is that, is that okay? <laughs> and I knew exactly what she meant because it is a little bit strange, but sometimes the, 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 the darkness in, in Ecclesiastes resonates with us because life is tough sometimes. So maybe if you're really, you know, if, if you, as you read through Psalms and Proverbs, you kind of feel like it's, it's a lot of like, oh, things are good, but I don't feel this way this week, then maybe go ahead and dive into to Ecclesiastes, and you'll find that all those thoughts that you have, all of those, the, the dark things, God has thought them before, God's people have thought them before, and God does not shy away from them. God's goal is that we live wisely, not naively. And wise living acknowledges the, that there is evil, it acknowledges darkness, but it also says our God is greater, and we can praise him in the midst of that. So Psalms, Proverbs, um, and then next week we'll do the, the New Testament Gospels. So let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we thank you so much that your word is not simply a list of do's and don'ts or ways to worship or uh, narratives of things that happened long ago, but it gets down into the nitty-gritty um, details of our life, things that might fall through the cracks of um, religious expression. But when it comes to, to wise living, Scripture is filled with very practical advice. Lord, we thank you for the Psalms, um, those who have gone before us, who have praised, lamented, given thanks, and um, even called for justice um, in the midst of, of difficult, trying times. Lord, I pray that as we read this week, that your word would uh, become more and more alive to us. We would um, understand what it meant, um, what it means for us, and how we can apply it to our lives. God, I pray that we would be a, a people who respond to you, um, that we would hear the, the call of the prophet Amos, and we would repent be faithful to the covenant, love for you, love for others. We would live wisely and we would praise your name greatly. I thank you for each one here. I pray that you would continue to bless them in their reading and um, in their lives. In your name we pray, amen.